Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. My guest today is Lloyd Grove. He's the editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. He's got a long career, 45-year career in news. Uh, welcome to the show, Lloyd. It's a pleasure ahead. to be here. You've been in news for 45 years. You've been in local news. You've been in national news. You've been at the Corpus Christi Collar Times, the Washington Post, Vanity Fair, now editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. Uh, how has the business changed in the last 45 years from your perspective? It's gotten a lot more aggressive. It's gotten a lot more comprehensive in terms of coverage. And then uh, the, uh, in, in the 90s, in a big way, the Internet intruded. And the whole business model of journalism, especially of newspapers, was turned on its head. And now we have uh, local newspapers especially dying on the vine all around the country, creating uh, news deserts. And, but you have new uh, institutions like the Daily Beast, where I just retired from a few days ago, and I'm moving to France, in case anyone cares. So uh, the, the traditional uh, news institutions are hard-pressed to make any money. They're being bought up by rapacious hedge funds. who All, all, see, all they seem to want to do is fire people, sell equipment and real estate and then uh, turned it over for a profit, uh, leaving the communities uh, without any responsible news organizations. So, you know, how is that? I mean, we don't have enough time to talk about how much the, uh, the business has changed since I started in 1976 as a summer intern at the Kansas City Times, by the way, a newspaper that no longer exists, uh, and covered the... Uh, Republican convention that nominated Jerry Ford to uh, run against Jimmy Carter. So you've taught, you've mentioned a lot of changes. You've mentioned sort of the direction in which the business is going right now. Uh, some people are not hopeful. Uh, they, with reference to these things you talk about, the consolidation of outlets, uh, the death of a lot of local news outlets, a lot of people aren't hopeful that we as a country, as a community of people, are going to continue to get a true unfiltered information from objective sources. Are you hopeful or are you not? Well, there is some op cause for optimism on the national level. Papers like the New York Times and the Washington Post and certainly the Wall Street Journal have uh, managed to survive and thrive in the new environment because they've been able to do away with uh, the totally ad-supported business model, uh, get financial support from readers, from subscribers. You know, journalism is expensive. And um, up until recently, people were just accustomed going online to going online and getting their uh, uh, journalism for free. Well, journalism costs money, and a lot of people are recognizing that and are willing to pay a subscription fee. I, I personally subscribe to the journal, The Times, and The Washington Post. Um, I, I sub subscribe to uh, Graydon Carter's Airmail, 
and I subscribed to the Daily Beast, my former employer, because I realized that it, it, it ain't free. And if you want good journalism, you have to pay for it. Now, luckily, places like the Times and the Post are gaining millions of subscribers. I believe, and I may be wrong on this, I, I just remember the last time I looked, the Times had 7 million subscribers paying, I, I, I think, each around 15 to uh, $20 a month. And that's just for their online content. It's much more expensive if you get the dead tree journalism newspaper delivered to your welcome mat. But the Times is doing quite well. Uh, the Washington Post is doing quite well. And even the long um, uh, money losing New York Post, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch, claims to be making a profit these days. Who knows? I'm not so sure. But so that so on, on the national level, things are sorting themselves out. On the local level, it's much more difficult. And those uh, newspapers are are very hard pressed and, and they're dying like flies across the country. So let me shift gears and talk a little more substantively, because as you point out, journalism isn't cheap and uh, journalism is also very powerful. Uh, you have an incredible amount of power when you've got control of a platform and you can use that platform to spread information. So tell me, Lloyd, when someone comes to you and they say, I've got a juicy tidbit uh, about someone or something, what are your, or actually, how do you tell if someone's lying? What makes you uncomfortable when you're getting information from somebody and you're like, ah, this could be kind of juicy, but it makes me something about it doesn't feel right. What's your smell test consist of? Well, it's not that complicated. Someone says they, they have something juicy and perhaps even scandalous about somebody, uh, a prominent person. And I guess, I guess the first hurdle that it has to go, if, if it were to be published, would it be newsworthy? Would anyone care? So that's the first thing. I mean, if, if somebody uh, told me something about somebody no, nobody ever heard of, I wouldn't be terribly interested. But okay, let's let's say it's a it's a po famous politician, uh, a celebrity, or somebody like that. Then, okay, wh what what you're being told may be true and it may not be true. So it's up to you as the journalist to corroborate everything and to do everything you can to ascertain what the actual facts are. And if you don't have that, then you don't publish. And the other thing uh, we do, or we, uh, at my former employer, the Daily Beast, is if something is potentially, um, you, you know, uh, subject to litigation, and, and then then we uh, always consult our in-house attorney, and, and who uh, runs runs the traps with us and says, well, do you have this? Do you have that? Um, did you reach out for comment to this person or that person? So it has to all be pretty well uh, nailed down for it uh, to even pass that uh, test. And then uh, when, as and if it's published, if, you know, the subject of it uh, decides to sue, then, then we have to have a very strong defense. And, 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 you know, if, if God forbid uh, a trial ever went to a jury, then we'd have to, you know, be able to prove to 
our fellow citizens that we did everything we could to ascertain the facts. I mean, there is a famous case that's still, I guess, operating, Times versus Sullivan, New York Times versus Sullivan. And I don't remember the details of the case, but I do uh, remember that. If, if it laid out the standard, the legal standard for when when someone can be liable for publishing information uh about a third party. But if you already get to the point where you're being sued, I mean, that's a, you can, these days, you I mean, you can sue anybody over anything, uh, you know, right? I mean, it's not that, <laughs> I'm just telling you, it's not that hard sometimes uh, to, for people to contrive or concoct litigation. Is there anything that you, like, is there anything that's off limits to you? Uh, you know, I'm not, you know, you're not interested in stories about, kids. You're not interested in stories about sexual peccadilloes, for instance. Is there anything that you're like, eh, you know, I just don't, I don't do this. This is off limits. Anything well, off it, limits? Depends on what the, it depends on what the sexual peccadilloes are. I mean, there, you, you're, you may be old enough to remember that we had a president who was impeached over sexual pe- peccadilloes. <laughs> old enough to remember. And I, uh, I was working in the Solicitor General's office and worked on that case, representing the office of the president, trying to stay Clinton's civil case, uh, I suppose well, is your point. I, I mean, I think, I, I, I think uh, sexual peccadilloes is, is something that fuels a very profitable gossip industry. I, I mean, there's a, there's a website owned by Telepictures, uh, which is owned by Warner Media, I guess it's called now, called TMZ, and and they traffic in that um, a, a lot, and uh, and you know there, there's uh, page six of the New York Post is constantly tracking uh, the whereabouts and 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 who he's with of Alex Rodriguez since his split with Jennifer Lopez, and as as I find myself talking about that, I'm almost uh, falling asleep. Can I circle back to one other thing you said? Sure. Um, you said, how do we get objective, unfiltered uh, news? And I just, I, I want to take a little bit of issue with that, just because, first of all, it's uh, a reporter's job to filter information. Um, there's a, a lot of broth out there. There's a lot of, uh, there's some wheat and there's some chaff. And it's uh, the reporter's job to use his or her judgment to decide what's important um, and report that and what's not important and leave that on the cutting room floor. That's number one. And number two, I don't believe after 45 years in the business that there's any such thing as objective journalism. I mean, everybody brings their own uh, you know, perspective to the table, um, no matter how hard they try not to. And the only thing you can do is bring fair journalism. If, if somebody's being criticized or attacked, get their side too, and and try and and just sort of reflect all important sides of an issue. Not every side of an issue, but all the the ones that you and your judgment have decided because you know something presumably about the subject you're reporting on are important. 
Uh, very good point, because as you point out, there's always going to be some filter. There's, at a minimum, the decision about what story is interesting or newsworthy uh, reflects certain judgments uh, that that people might have. Uh, is there a story that you regret having pursued and or published? Oh, so many, so many. Give me um, one. Well, I, I will give you one, and it's really it's it's really a, a terrible thing. When I was at the Washington Post, the junior reporter there, the uh, television columnist uh, asked me to pursue an allegation of embezzlement over at the NBC Washington bureau by uh, uh, a member of the crew. Uh, I think it was a camera person, and I did, and I called the guy up. I reached him at home. I said. What about these allegations that we're hearing? And he basically denied it and hung up on me. And then the next morning, I learned, uh, much to my horror, that he had gone out in his backyard, taken his rifle and shot himself to death. And that really obviously was a terrible thing. It had a huge impact on me. Not that, that that's the important thing, but it did tell me that you have to be careful in this business. You called this person. You didn't have any substantive conversation with him. Uh, Correct. But after receiving the phone call from you, he took his own life. How did that impact you going forward and doing your reporting? Well, obviously, I, I was, well, in the first instance, I was, like, shocked. I, I you know, felt sick to my stomach. I, uh, you know, didn't get into the journalism business to... Uh, to, to uh, have that sort of a thing happen. And it was, you know, just, just for me, it, it was uh, a cautionary note at, at minimum about the importance of, you know, being, um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I could have done differently. Uh, obviously, I felt horrible about it. And, um, you know, certainly wasn't worth reporting a story like that and, and, and having that as a result. It, was, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't worth somebody's life, obviously. Your business is premised on getting facts and uh, sharing true information and presenting that information to the public. You're now in an environment, uh, and this is kind of where we started, where lies <laughs> and what people sometimes delicately refer to as alternative facts, you know, sometimes, Lloyd, they're given equal time. Uh, we live in the world of uh, the false comparison, the false analogy, the if I can get enough people to believe it, then it, there's no harm in saying it. How does truth-telling compete in that type of environment? Oh my God, that is a huge problem because, I mean, I guess, I guess it was, uh, was it Mark Twain who said that a lie travels uh, halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on? Mm. And technology has only exacerbated that problem. And we've seen, especially with uh, the advent of QAnon, this uh conspiracy theory that apparently millions of Americans have signed on to the uh, big lie that Donald Trump is continuing to uh, 
put out there that uh, he actually won the election against Joe Biden and that uh, uh, there was so much voter fraud in, in uh, various key states that uh, he was deprived of a victory. That's still going on. And, you know, uh, platforms like Facebook in particular, which has until very recently taken the position that, you know, anybody can use our platform to put out anything they want, including Holocaust denial, uh, including uh, lies about the election. And and during uh, the 2016 election, uh, just a, a whole series of, of uh, lies designed to help Donald Trump and, you know, damage Hillary Clinton. It's really a, a, a problem that not just journalists, but the body politic as a whole ha- has been grappling with in a big way for at least the last uh, five years. And hopefully uh, there'll be some way to counter it, but doesn't look like it. I mean, the most I, I uh, read recently that the most a shared item on Facebook the other week was something from Marjorie Taylor Greene, the uh, strange congresswoman from Georgia, which was basically a screed about how vaccinations kill people, something like that. So we have a huge problem, and it it doesn't seem to be getting much better. Are you hopeful that the world just proceeds in the right direction and that truth ultimately will out. Uh, do you have some hope on that front? Well, of course, we, we've got to hope that. <laughs> <laughs> right? Or we're yes, all doomed. I, yes. Good. I, I, exactly. I, I needed a touch of optimism. I, you've interviewed a lot of people. Um, you've prodded a lot of people for information. Who's your favorite subject? Who's the person who, if you, when you have the chance to sit down and talk to them, is always something that you find rewarding? And on top of that, who have you never uh, interviewed that you would like to? Oh, well, I have so many people uh, across the spectrum of businesses that I've enjoyed talking to that I would hate to pick out a favorite a lot of I, I was at the Washington Post for many years, and I always, uh, you know, liked and enjoyed uh, talking to uh, politicians. We're we're I mean, there was a guy, a senator from Oklahoma that I really enjoyed talking to that probably no one uh, remembers. He's now president or last I checked, he was president of the University of Oklahoma or Oklahoma University, I should say, David Boren, who uh, was always fun to talk to. Um, but, you know, that's that's kind of. Nobody's nobody will know who that is. I mean, I've interviewed lots of celebrities. I was at Vanity Fair. I did cover stories on, uh, you know, people like Denzel Washington. And, you know, he he was fun to hang out with. You know who I would have liked to have interviewed and gotten to know, but didn't have the chance because he sort of died before I got to the level where I could have even, uh, you know, asked for an interview. Richard Nixon. Hmm. One of the most fascinating, I mean, I'll still read anything about Richard Nixon. One of the most fascinating uh, presidents we've ever had. He was, by current standards, a pretty liberal president in terms of policy. By current standards, he'd be a Democrat almost. <laughs> he, well, no, he'd be better than a Democrat. He's certainly been too far to the left of Joe Manchin. 
right? Yeah. So, you know, he started the Environmental Protection Agency. He uh, uh, did, did a lot of uh, things that were that would be considered by the Donald Trump and his supporters um, as, you know, communism. He uh, unfortunately had a bit of spot, a spot of bother with uh, his, his paranoia and, and, and uh, spying on people and ransacking psychiatrist files and doing all kinds of crazy things. But uh, fascinating guy. And uh, I, I regret that I never had a chance to meet him. We talked about uh, a story that you regret, but let's flip it. What is a story that uh, you worked on that you did of which you're really proud? Uh, something that you think made a big impact, made a big difference? If you can name oh, just wow. one. I'm sure there have been several. Yeah, well, you know, the branch of journalism that I operated in mostly was sort of feature journalism and and personality journalism. I, I at the Washington Post, I sort of had a franchise of profiling politicians and power brokers and and people like that. And those were the sorts of stories that would you know have a momentary sort of burst of impact, but they wouldn't you know it, it wasn't like I was you know, Bob Woodward uh, investigating uh, uh, malfeasance in the White House or or perhaps even more important, the uh, uh, contamination of water in Flint, Michigan. That might have uh, I might have been better served and, and better serving journalism by doing that kind of reporting. But that's not what I did. The kinds of stories that had impact in, in Washington in particular, that, you know, I, I think uh, showed that I was a good reporter and a, and a, and a decent writer. Um, here's somebody that nobody has heard of, or, but was a huge person in Bill Clinton's Washington. Her name is Susan Thomases, and I did a, and she was sort of a, a Hillary Clinton's best friend and was operating with huge uh, influence and power with, with no particular job at the White House. She would just sort of do drive-by killings, as it were, uh, and the staff was terrified of her, and uh, she uh, had um, uh, enormous power, that unelected and unappointed even, and uh, I did a huge profile of her in the Washington Post. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of that piece. That took many uh, weeks to do, and it was, uh, I thought, my best kind of reporting, very meticulously done on my part. You know, that's the sort of standard I, I hope to uh, rise to going forward. Why, uh, why are you retiring right now from the Daily Beast at because, least? Well, well, because A, I can, and B, my wife has sort of been waiting patiently for me to stop being obsessive. Uh, about checking my uh, Twitter and iPhone writing on the clock every every day. So I'm of the age where I'm I'm open to uh, experiencing new things. And we are actually in a couple of days we're getting on a plane and going to France. <laughs> a lot of people threatened to go to France during the Trump administration, 
but uh, we're actually doing it, and not for that reason. And and we're going to uh, uh, initially uh, live in a small house on a vineyard in Languedoc, wherever that is. I guess I'll find out. I'm going to uh, make every effort to learn uh, workmanlike French so I can get through the day. (laughs) Uh, Well, congratulations to you on that. You're certainly on the route. You're certainly on route to unplugging. Are you going to keep writing? Are you going to keep digging? Are you going to at some point resurface uh, with new information and new stories? Yeah, that's the plan. I have promised uh, my wife, Catherine, that I would uh, not do not be resurfacing in that way through the rest of this year. And then 2022 will begin. And I hope to find uh, places, perhaps magazines or, or uh, websites and the Daily Beast um, as well that might want my work. And and we'll see. And in, in between, you know, going around uh, France and, and the rest of Europe and drinking uh, good stuff, uh, I hope I can uh, every so often come up with a story or two. I I wish you all the best on this new adventure. And before you go, Lloyd, uh, give a word of advice, if you would, to young people who are considering a career in journalism, who want to make a life out of telling truth and bringing uh, real stories and real facts to people and sometimes might find that daunting. Uh, in the current age we're in, what's your advice to the young hopefuls out there? Well, I mean, God bless anyone who wants to uh, enter this crazy business. It's more challenging economically now than when I entered it. But on the other hand, there are new, there are, uh, new properties uh, starting up all the time, new publications, mostly online, which is uh, a great way to uh, distrib- disseminate your work. But the the one thing I would say to people is don't don't look for shortcuts. You know, do all the do all the scut work. Get yourself sort of, you know, I guess Malcolm Malcolm Gladwell uh, wrote that it takes ten thousand hours of work at something to be any good at it. Well, you know, take that philosophy and you know do do the local reporting. Interview uh, neighborhood residents. Uh, hang out in the in the cop shop, and and write about uh, police work. And don't always take the police's word for it. Obviously, um, and uh, you know, uh, people who are drawn to this line of work uh, don't even need to be told stuff like that because they already know. Maybe there are people who want to go into television. Maybe like the Nicole Kidman character and to die for. But those, those, are not the, those are not the people that, uh, that we're talking to here. Lloyd Grove, uh, until very recently, editor-at-large at the Daily Beast, soon to be yucking it up in France on a vineyard, uh, enjoying the good life. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for sharing your thoughts about journalism and facts and truth and your life. And uh, I really, I wish you all the best. I hope we stay in touch. I would love to, Tanya. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Thanks, Lloyd. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me, 
Darkoya Connor and Sam Fragoso are our producers. Rich Marchuka is our editor. Cole Mitchell is our composer. Our production assistant is Sydney Freeman. Our graphic designer is Greta Lalike. Audrey Ruiz is our social media manager. And our web developer is Eric Valentine. If you like us, and I hope you do, please subscribe, please leave five stars, and please come back. Thanks so much for being here.